0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I'm very excited to be welcoming Rob Volpe to the podcast. Rob is the founder and CEO of Ignite360, an insights and strategy firm helping Fortune 500 companies better connect and understand their consumers. One could say that Rob's superpower is empathy, which is displayed in his new book, Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time. He discusses his years of experience conducting thousands of in-home interviews with everyday people and applying those experiences to ultimately create the five steps of empathy. Listeners, Rob's new book is one of my favorites this year. And we're lucky enough to be giving away two copies. Make sure you follow the podcast on Instagram to learn how to get your own copy. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited uh, to have this conversation with you. And as I was reading your book, tell me more about that, solving the empathy crisis one conversation at a time. And listeners, don't worry, we're definitely going to dive into the book. What I loved was how you started to talk about your upbringing and you referred to it as your origin story. So for listeners who might not know, can you tell us what your origin story is?
1: Yeah, my, my, well, first Mallory. Hi, it's so awesome to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, and yeah just delighted and excited to talk with you um so yeah my origin story i grew up in a small town in indiana um and it it, things started out really well i had a, a best friend who later came to find out as we both became adults we were both gay um, so we had a blast role playing Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, Bionic Woman, you name the, the action heroines of the 70s, and we were doing it. And then my family moved to a smaller small town in Indiana that wasn't um, quite as open minded at the time as as the other place and I started to bump into Uh, what expectations were of what boys should be and, and how people should behave. And it wasn't long after I started fifth grade, which is the year we moved to that town, that one of the kids decided to tell everybody that I was gay. And that caught on like wildfire. And this is 1980, small town Indiana, So didn't really like way before Ellen, way before Will and Grace, like RuPaul, all of that. Like, what's what is gay? Uh, You know, and I had to ask my my mom, like, what is that? Why are why are they saying that? And and that stuck with me and 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 followed me around. I mean, it was, yeah, gosh, I that was in fifth grade. I didn't come out until I was 23, 24. So clearly, you know. It's not like I got caught making out behind the barn with somebody
0: did that I feel like that kid kind of stole your moment in a way like you hadn't even figured out who you were and kids are kids say horrible things I experienced it when I was younger as well but nothing where what they said shaped my identity or really like stuck to like who I became I don't know if I'm explaining that in the right way but I feel like he labeled or said something about you that you would have figured out a longer journey but at and some then, point but it was already in the back of your head somehow
1: yeah and it was I, I knew I was different from the other kids I just couldn't put my finger on what that was but I, I didn't totally you know fit in in, in the one town where where my friend Joey and I were role-playing, I was kind of like the other kids didn't really care and they didn't make a big deal out of it. And maybe it's because we were younger at that point. But then all of a sudden you get into, you know, fifth, sixth grade and then into junior high school. Oh,
0: the worst time.
1: The, the worst, worst. The
0: worst time.
1: Absolute worst. And you know, and that's when kids start to figure out who they are and where they belong and and sort and, and organize and um and and also I think, you know, lash out because of their own injuries. And that's kind of what I came to realize many, many years later, um, was that it had nothing to do with me. I was I was just the easy target. Um, but I think what you said where he, he did steal something from me. I think that's true. Um, I would have ultimately come out like who I, I am a gay man. And I was back then as a youth, I just didn't have the words for it, but it did mess with my head about how to be comfortable with myself and, and, and really how to, um, behave around other people and modify my own behavior to make sure that I was fitting in, that rumors weren't going to get started. And you know that ultimately turned into a superpower and I was able to start to have empathy and use empathy to to help achieve that, but it made me worry about things that I think most kids shouldn't have to worry about in their in their childhood.
0: The way you tell your story, first off you are a beautiful amazing storyteller the way you like weave in your personal experiences with the actual text and marketing material in your book it wasn't just another marketing leadership how you should do kind of book it really combined beautifully your personal experiences and how that translates into everyday activities pretty much or how you have built this career based off of really let's start in fifth grade. They weren't empathetic. You were on the other side of it. And I feel like when people go through certain things, I have a lot of empathy because of certain experiences I've gone through. But it's hard that you have to go through those experiences to get empathy. Yeah. You're not born with it necessarily.
1: Right, um, yeah, and we we' we're, we're born with the ability to have empathy, actually. It's like the muscles are there, but you've got to train the muscles. So the analogy I, I often use is, you know kids are born babies are born with the muscles that will let them walk at some point. but they need to be given the opportunities and the experiences to, um, you know, strengthen their muscles so that they can crawl and then stand and scoot ultimately walk and run. And empathy is very similar to that. We have to be put into situations that we have to have the behavior modeled for us to understand how to respond, how to react, what it means to be Empathetic, and there's so many different things going on in society, and have been for decades that have have hindered that training time that we get. We don't get enough time practicing being empathetic, and and therefore we're in kind of our current state today.
0: Well, one um, study you really bring up in the book, and that I've heard you speak about in other interviews, is the study of studies that came out of the University of Michigan in 2001 that showed 40%, yes, listeners, 40% decrease in empathy amongst college students. That is alarming to me because I would think in college is when you're supposed to be the most empathetic, the most understanding, the most, quote unquote, liberal and open. And there's a 40% decrease and it hasn't rebounded.
1: Has not improved. And that was in 2001 when they identified the 40% decline. So I don't we're want like to know 20, where it's at 20, now. <laughs> Valerie, we're 20 years on with that. And, and yeah, who knows where it is exactly? Um, and another sort of shocking statistic, a, a study we did at my company, Ignite360, which is a research firm, we fielded a research study in January and it found nearly one third of American adults were unable to agree with that same statement that was posed to the college students of, am I able to easily see the point of view of somebody else? And to me, that's like a no-brainer, I'm a good person, member of society. Of course, I'm gonna say, yes, I can see the point of view of other people. But one third said, no, they couldn't easily do that. And that to me is also, those two things together, it's like, oh my gosh, we have such a problem in our
0: society. Especially because you think those individuals are having kids and they're teaching their kids how you're all right, always right or whatever it is, and I just I cringe when I saw that number. It's like imagine,
1: it's like okay, so I use the analogy. I'm never, I've never drawn this connection before, so this will be a first. But let's go with it. Um, you know, I use the analogy of the baby learning how to walk and and using those muscles. Well, imagine if we could only walk or we we were able to walk 40 percent less well as we we would otherwise what would be happening we'd be bumping into each other we'd be falling over we'd be tripping over ourselves because we couldn't stand up properly and that's exactly what's happened with the decline in empathy you see that in our society we metaphorically are running into each other and colliding and 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 You know, in the the arguments that we're having, not seeing each other's points of view, not getting to a place of compassion with people on the other side, Um, it's a it's a real problem, and and it's because we're not given that opportunity to practice it early on.
0: So there are two types of empathy, from my understanding. There's um, cognitive empathy and then emotional empathy. For listeners who maybe don't know the difference, can you explain them?
1: Absolutely. So. Emotional empathy is the one that most people often think of when they they hear the word empathy. And it's the one that most people are afraid of, too, because it's, you know, emotions, um, feelings, and ooh, that's icky, uncomfortable stuff, I don't know what to do with it. Emotional empathy, the, the analogy I use for that, it's like when we're living in a cave and back in cave dwelling times. So imagine you're back in the cave, you might have emotional empathy with the people living in the cave with you, which are probably your family and your very closest friends, if there's other family units there or something. Cognitive empathy is about seeing the point of view of other people. So it's perspective taking. So emotions are feeling the emotions with someone else as they're feeling it. Cognitive empathy, the second form, of empathy is seeing the point of view of somebody else. So it's it's also equal with language, but it's around perspective taking because you don't know that person well enough. You don't know their um, rituals, their their values, their lifestyles, their behaviors completely to, Have emotional empathy, but you might be able to see where they're coming from and understand. Okay, I get their point of view, Um, and that is what we really need to have a well-functioning society: is being able to see each other's point of view. And it it, it's useful in our day-to-day personal interactions as well as our professional interactions.
0: So, in your book, tell me more about that. You talk about there's like five different stages of empathy um or five different components and what I loved so I listened I started reading it then I moved to Audible and I was I finished it in three days. I loved hearing you tell the stories. Um there were some parts where I, I laughed out loud because of how you were telling the story and I was like oh my gosh I would be in your shoes too and I was laughing to myself and You are just such a phenomenal storyteller. But what I love is that each story related back to some of the principles and that I was able to see, or I guess here, as you start to grow in your career, you were able to take a step back and really look at situations differently. You were able to realize, oh, I wasn't approaching this the right way. There's this one story where this gentleman keeps talking about his mother and referring to her as mother and you go upstairs to go to the restroom and you see this like dummy and all of a sudden you're like, am I, you know, psycho and what's going on? And you're not even able to really pay attention to the product you're really asking him about because you get so in your head. And I'm very much like that as well. So I thought that was hilarious, but then you were able to say, I was putting judgment into the situation. I wasn't able to approach it in an empathetic way. Why did you feel the need to write this book? And I know it took you almost six years to do this, yeah, but yeah. what was the reasoning behind it? Cause I feel like you could do a volume two with so many more stories.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah, thank you. I'm so uh, honored, touched, and pleased that you enjoyed it, the book so much. And and you're the first person who's finished the because Audible the version just came out, and so you're one of the first people I've heard from that that's listened to it. And I, I love that hearing that feedback. So thank you. Um, yeah. So why the book? you know, a, like I recognized in 2010 when that study of studies came out about the 40% decline that, okay, there's a big empathy crisis. And we started doing more at Ignite 360, um, to, to help our clients connect empathetically with their consumers. And that became, you know, all of the stories from the book are from those kind of adventures and misadventures. And I, I, I was standing in front of a classroom, giving a presentation. I'd talk about the industry and and what my firm does. And then I, because I knew there's an empathy crisis and I need to do what I can to to help fix that and bring awareness to it. I started presenting as a second part to that, those presentations, I would talk about empathy and tell some of my stories from the field. And the students were just hanging on my every word as I was, I, I, the story, the chapter is called mother would never do that. Um, and that story of Frank uh, is one that I've always told. And then Amelia, um, and some of the, the adventures with her and those in homes and that's in the book. And the students were just like riveted. And I thought, you know, and, and this is like, I don't know, so six, seven years ago. And I'm like, college students aren't supposed to be paying this much attention. Like they're really hanging on on my every word. And a little voice inside me said, this is what you need to write about. These are the stories you need to tell. And for me, I've just always found that people, for whatever reason, people learn and respond to me better when I'm telling stories rather than me telling you should do this and you must do that when I'm sharing my own personal experiences and my you know failures and successes people learn from that and additionally what happens and what I've been hearing from people that have read the book is it the the because the book's entertaining, you were laughing um, at certain points and, you know, moved in other other ways at other times, it sits into your brain a little differently. And so then what happened, what I'm hearing is happening is that when people get into situations, those stories start to come up and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm being judgmental. I'm being like he was in, in the book or, you know, one mom, um, Told me, never met her before, reached out. She was having trouble with her son. He was 13 years old in English class. And she was about to just challenge him and go, well, why are you having problems in English? And just as she was about to ask that question, she thought about the book and chose instead to just say, well, tell me more about what's going on in English. And it changed the nature of his answer. He wasn't on the defensive. And they had a much better positive conversation Um, as a result, she was able to help him in a way that she never had before. So,
0: so Uh, yeah, I would say, so I think Audible told me it was going to be, I don't know, 11 or 12 hours, give or take. I finished it in three days. I remember I was walking, listening you know, I can remember the story about the woman with the pancake and the mold where exactly where I was on what street corner in Chicago, because I just was standing there being like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do in this situation. Thinking about these stories, but more importantly, what you said is, all right, how do I approach conversations? How do I get more information? And As I've grown both personally and professionally, it's those open ended questions where your judgment isn't coming through or you're trying to mute that as quietly as you can. And I understand we're all human, it's not always going to work. There's sometimes we're talking to someone, and I'm like, why would you wear that outfit? Like, what are you thinking? Now, that shouldn't be what's coming to my head, but you know, it is what it is. It's how do you push past that? Move that aside to still try to get to that blank slate where you can have an authentic conversation.
1: Absolutely. You can see that person um, for who they are rather than being judgmental about a judgment decision they made on what to wear that day.
0: And I think the best story in your book and listeners just let you know, uh, Rob has been so gracious. He's given me two books to give away and we'll post about that on Instagram. But was the one individual, the woman who had two kids, not with husband, but with their fathers, you found out she was going through a divorce at 18 and the story just kept growing and you never, you didn't think it was going to go. And I'm paraphrasing this entire chapter, but I think it was just such a great example of don't make judgments because you, every time you're like, well, okay, that makes sense. And then you're like, but why this? And then she would answer a question. You're like, I did not see the answer coming. did not <laughs> exactly. see that happening. And yeah. it just kind of kept going. But I think that's what makes you such a great marketer. And like you, I love to understand why people do what they do, understanding what's going on in someone's brain. And you put it into words so beautifully. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, we just, we make assumptions about other people based on our own life or how we view the world. And that comes across as being judgmental and it blocks us. I mean, I have so many different analogies for judgment. It's a brick wall. It's noise canceling headsets. Um, but the point is that it gets in your way and it prevents you from seeing the other person and and hearing anything that they're going to tell you. And it also clouds the way that you're going to ask questions and even make sense of it in your own mind, um, after you've heard the information. So to me, and it's interesting that research that we've done, it shows that the more, um, kind of the more educated somebody is, the more judgmental. The more that being judgmental gets in the way, there's something in the, you know, we're we're trained through schooling to be right, to have a point of view, to have an opinion, and as a result, that can come across as being judgmental. When in reality, we need to be curious and we need to be open to try to understand, and that can mean take, putting judgment aside.
0: So you started your own firm, Ignite Three Sixty, and I love how you explain that. You didn't want to be an employee anymore, which yeah. I get. You want to kind of be your own boss and be able to make judgment calls. Can you talk to me about what that journey was like? Because obviously it's scary to go off on your own and not to have that corporation or benefits or a paycheck coming in.
1: Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it was uh, just over 11 years ago. um, And it was actually the second time I'd been out on my own. I had gotten laid off um, back in 1999. Yeah, 98, 99. I got laid off from a job. It was in a marketing communications firm. But it coincided with a friend and I were about to go out. and We wanted to start our own small consulting practice for uh, small businesses. I was living in New York at the time. And did that for about three years. But 9-11 happened. Everything just kind of went upside down. And I thought that was time to feel the, as I call it, the warm embrace of a large corporation again. And so I went and worked at Kraft Foods for a couple of years and, you know, large corporation. Um, and that was great. And it, it served its purpose for me. And then we moved out here to San Francisco. I'd gotten another job, got laid off from that job a couple of years later. And, you know. Every time, like the universe keeps putting the same thing in front of you until you you puts the same obstacle in front of you until until you you learn
0: the lesson. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. And and what the universe kept putting in front of me was you should be in insights and research. And I just wasn't understanding what it was until this later time. So I'd gotten trained to moderate. I was working as a contractor uh, for another firm and they needed to make me an employee. And we had a long back and forth about that. I was like, well, I'm okay being an employee, but I want to have equity because I work so hard and I'm helping grow and build something. I'd like to have that sort of payoff or reward from it. And they unfortunately weren't able to do that. So it was like, all right, well, show me the money. Let's Put the contract in front of me and let's see, and, and we'll have a, a conversation about it. And I still remember the day getting the contract, opened it up on my laptop, and I had dodged looking at it for about two or three weeks. And the owner of the firm was like, hey, come on, I need need we need to make this happen. So... I'm in my kitchen uh, here in our house in San Francisco and I'm looking at the contract and, you know, in the first sentence or two, and it says, you know, it's identifying the different parties and it had my name and then had the parenthetical quotation marks and all caps employee.